Ladies and gentlemen, now it's too late with Alan Mosley. Guys, welcome back for another episode of It's Too Late. I am your host, Alan Mosley, joined as always by the number one producer in late night. It's Sherry Voluntary. Sherry, how are you doing? Hey, I'm pretty good. Going all right. Did you do anything last weekend worth mentioning? No. I swear to God, like this is a late night show and you get the typical late night banter and the guest just stares blankly into the screen and says, uh, mm, no. I fell down the stairs. Did you really? I did. I have a bruise. I mean, having a bruise and that be it for your fall down the stairs, I guess. I mean, what? if you're going to have a good yeah. fall down the stairs, that's about as I, good as it's going to be. Well, I, I got whiplash as well. And like I had this horrendous headache from it and everything. But we won't don't even bother. It's old lady stuff. I mean, terrible. I mean, that. I mean, you, you've had worse accidents than that. So <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I mean, I mean, two of them still live at home. But anyway, uh, you know, I was looking at Twitter right before we got started and there was this guy, there's some, some professor somewhere, which you already know where I'm going with this. The fact that you knew they were a professor, you're thinking, okay, 80% chance this guy's a communist. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, he was, it was the reason I saw it is that Stalin was trending on Twitter. And I thought, oh God, here we go. So, I mean, me, an intellectual, I was like, okay, I'll buy it. Let's see why Stalin is trending on Twitter. And it was this guy who is playing, he's playing this, you know, he's playing this game of saying, look, I'm a fair and balanced observer, okay? A lot of people think that I'm, like, simping for Joseph Stalin because I'm a communist. He, he doesn't hide that he says he's a communist, by the way. Right. But, but I'm, I'm going to give a fair and balanced report. Uh, in, in 2021, he's giving us a fair and balanced report. Right. And so, and so he goes on this long thread about like, look, you know, he, he said and did some bad things, <gasps> What? but it's just undeniable that so many people prospered under Soviet control. <laughs> and, and of course, to, to be fair, this is actually a good story because there was a ton of people just roasting this guy. Dragging him. Just just roasting this guy like and some people saying like, well, my Ukrainian grandparents starved to death. So I would say they didn't prosper too well uh, under under Stalinism. And so and so me, of course, being me, I thought about hitting him with the euthanasia dot com. But I thought, you know, you talk about commies. Those bastards have not paid us a cent for all the traffic we've been driving them to their website. <laughs> so so instead, I decided to go with you should be launched into the sun, I think. <laughs> hey that's pretty good maybe the sun will pay us well you know the best part was is that there of course there's some random commie on twitter who's like you can't say that that's a threat so they tag me they tag me with at fbi and i'm like look if the fbi's got rockets we'll call them <laughs> if there was ever a time for us to work together with the federal bureau of investigation oh, it's God. if they've got a shuttle to the sun we'll We'll work something out. Yeah, the only problem is they want to shuttle us to the sun, not the friggin' commons. <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking of wanting to work things out with the feds, so mm -hmm. I know I know a lot of people are um, upset, angry, uh, shocked. Maybe maybe still more shocked and waiting to see if this is real life Thanks. than than absorbing things yet. And of course, I'm talking about. Um, the the death of tech pioneer and I tell you what real real goddamn libertarian right. <laughs> is John McAfee. Do we do we have a picture of John McAfee? I think so. No, that's that actually does look a little bit like John McAfee with the beard. Right. That is indeed not John McAfee because he wouldn't have a fireman's helmet above him. Um, do we do we have the real John McAfee? Yeah, that's that's the real John McAfee right there. Yeah, you know, rest in peace. You know what's great about that picture is that none of those women are looking seductively at him. They're trying to find his Bitcoin wallet. <laughs> right. That's what they're. That's oh, what they're John, trying to do. Your Bitcoin what, wallet's so big. <laughs> and so here's here's the thing. So I, I I know at this point most people have heard about what happened. For for, for those that haven't, you know, McAfee was 
you know, to say someone is on the run is a weird thing to say because mm-hmm. I feel like your 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 kind of like Hollywood indoctrinated brain thinks of right. the guy going 110 down the interstate running from the cops, right? Tommy Gunn. But, yeah, but when you're a guy that's actually like on a boat sailing around the world, it's a mm-hmm. different sort of running right. on the run with beautiful women and yeah, and, and armed guards <laughs> right. to the Hard teeth life. and yeah and. And I tell you what, so this guy, he was, but he's akin more, even though he was a very, I think, safe to say flamboyant fellow yes. um, who, who, enjoyed, who enjoyed a drink every now and again, <laughs> uh, perhaps, perhaps a substance or two when, when the mood take, t- took him. Or seven. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the thing is, is that he's, even though he was that kind of guy, in a lot of ways, he was really more akin to someone like an Irwin Schiff mm, than yeah. just some random, you know, hardcore anarchist type who's just doing things for a laugh or a reaction. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, you know, in some ways, I feel like there's people out there that are still holding out hope that somehow this is all just a big charade because mm-hmm. McAfee was so, like, larger than life and so much of what he said and did, like bordered on incomprehensible mm-hmm. <laughs> that you're sitting here even now thinking wouldn't it wouldn't it be it, it would be classic mcafee for us to get another video from the man right. tomorrow and find out you know something or another uh, and i don't think that by the way um, wait I there's think, more <laughs> yeah but um but he's a lot more like Erwin Schiff in the sense that, you know, Erwin Schiff, which is Peter Schiff's father. And I know that there's a lot of people out there, particularly in the crypto communities and elsewhere, yeah. that aren't, aren't the biggest fans of Peter Schiff. But you, got, you put some goddamn respect on the name Erwin Schiff. Because mm-hmm. this was a guy who, who, who quite literally died putting his money where his mouth was. Yeah. Um, and in in another way that they're very in 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 that and to be clear for people who are totally outside of the loop, they're they're similar in that McAfee was really on the run for tax evasion. Like they didn't mm-hmm. care that he took pictures with models with a bunch of dust around his nose. All right? right, he was he was on for tax evasion. But the thing about him and Irwin both is is a couple things. One, it's 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 not really about the money. Like I don't, I couldn't sit here and tell you what Irwin Schiff or John McAfee really owed. Oh, of course we don't think they he, they owed anyone anything. Right, exactly. But we we don't know what the state thinks they owed anyone. Um, but it's never really about the money. It's about the defiance. Yes. The fact that they they didn't they didn't just not send in their return on time. That wasn't just the extent <laughs> of what they did. What they did next was, is they actually looked him right in the eyes and said, I'm not going to, and what are you going to do about it? Right. Now, that is something that Leviathan can't let stand. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'll be honest with you, I'm a little torn about it, because I, I admire that. Like, look, I mean, right. who, who doesn't admire the, the balls you have to have to look that creature in the eyes and say no? That's, that takes a lot. And and as you can see from the results, that's that's the reasonable expectation of what's going to happen next. Right. Um, but you know, a lot of people when the news broke out that he was found dead in his in his cell in in Spain, by the way, because that Leviathan's reach is is incredible. It's global. Yes, absolutely. Um, and of course, it's it's all listed as an apparent suicide. We're we're let in and in, in all the Epstein memes come back out of no one thinks that Epstein really killed himself in that cell, and now people don't think that John McAfee did. But there's something that I really want to impress upon people. A couple things. One is I also said that John McAfee didn't kill himself, but I added one little qualifier, and that was John McAfee didn't kill himself, even if he tied the noose. Mm, yes. And a lot, and I actually, I actually, believe it or not, I actually had a few people write me taking exception with that. Say, but he didn't though. You know what? <sighs> you don't fucking know. Right, exactly. You don't know what the man, I'm not, you know what? And I'm not sitting here, by the way, in this monologue trying to tell you that I was some great personal friend of McAfee. I wasn't. I had spoken to him once in my life, all right? Um, we weren't close confidants. And for a man in the position that he was in, it would be 
plausible mm -hmm. that he would take his own life. But he didn't kill himself, even if he tied the noose, because he was driven to do that. If he did it, he was driven to do it. In the same way that if someone handed you, you know, I think of, you know, there's a scene from that movie, uh, Enemy at the Gates, where... Uh, great movie. Yeah, it is a great movie, where uh, Khrushchev comes in, and he's taking over command from whatever lollygagger has been blowing it to the Nazis. And he hands him a pistol and walks out of the, and is heading out of the office. And he says, because he's implying to him, I'm going to give you one opportunity to do the right thing. Right. Otherwise, Stalin will take care of it. And of course, the guy blows his brains out. Now, that guy in this, in a lot of similar, that guy didn't really kill himself either in the mm -hmm. sense of he was told you're, you are about to suffer a torturous, terrible fate. But out of respect for you, I'm going to let you blow your brains out. Right. So, so no, John McAfee didn't kill himself but the reason why i'm torn about it and this leads me to my last point before we take a break is we did an episode about garrett foster a while back and mm -hmm. he was the young man with the uh, the quadriplegic uh, yeah. wife and he was gunned down at a at a rally at a blm protest uh that was in texas i think right and y uh, yes yeah. And and first of all, he's, there's never going to be any justice for that. And right. and we and we watched the videos and we looked at the replays from the different angles. But the point, but it, the point being was, is it wasn't really about breaking down the the who, what, where, when, what, why. What it was really about was, is is I was trying to tell people, I I don't want to come off as being unsympathetic. Or telling people that they shouldn't fight for what they believe in. Right. But I can tell you that Garrett Foster would be alive today if he wasn't there. Yeah. If he didn't put himself in a position where his his being who he was, being in that place around around people who are emotionally and physically charged with with guns present, mm -hmm. including his own. That you you're just being disingenuous if you say that that did not contribute to his to his situation, right? And so, I don't. I know that there will be people out there that will criticize me and say I'm some kind of a coward. But I. But if being a coward, but us being able to live and flourish and and enjoy each other's company and and be a good example and role model for others, then I'll I'll wear that moniker. But my dream has always been that folks like us could could do well enough, could could financially prosper, could congregate, could build a community, build those networks. Yeah. Some of those things we talked about in our Savior Complex episode, mm -hmm. build those relationships with one another so that while we don't live in a free world, you're distancing yourself from that oppression in, in real terms as much as you possibly can. And, and at the same time, moving together with as many like-minded folks as you possibly can. But a big part of making that work is that you sort of keep your head down, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. And while I, and while I admire and and honor people like a John McAfee who to to say he wore it on his sleeve is is an understatement <laughs> of the century. <Right. laughs> he was he was very openly and publicly the man he was and what he believed in and he was very defiant in that but he's not here anymore. Mm -hmm. And if that's the kind of man you want to be, I will admire you all the way to your grave. Mm -hmm. But I would much rather you stay here with us. Yeah. I think every, everything has risks, you know, even fighting for freedom and it's about how you choose to do it. And do we want to choose it at the expense of our whole life or choose to try and do it another way and create, like you said, those communities where we can live as free as possible while still kind of resisting. It's, it's a tough choice and there's a difference between it, you going out and looking for it and it finding you and you not being able to, to say no anymore and just draw a line. It's, it's very individual. It's, it's tough. The losses are tough. Just say no. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's, that's, that's all I have to say about that with an even remotely serious tone. We're, we're going to, we're going to get back to having a good time. I know that if McAfee were here today, 
Um, besides the fact of wanting to know where the hookers and blow was, right. he would be saying, let's get on with this damn show. So guys, we're going to be right back with the meme of the week and the viewer mail right after this. Don't go away. Hey, Sherry. Yes? What time is it? Meme of the week! <laughs> McAfee should have just paid his taxes. Blocked. <laughs> look, look, look at the smile on the dude's face as he does yeah, it. He's like so happy. Like, oh, sometimes they just take themselves out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. People really should watch this show if they just listen. I'm just saying. I, t- I tell you out. what. Yeah. So first of all, if you don't watch the show, then you should visit euthanasia.com to get the information you need to make the right choice for you. See, even in this very moment, people who are listening but don't watch are like, right. what the hell just happened? <laughs> what are all those noises? Um, speaking, speaking of what are all those noises, let's answer some viewer mail. Yeah. Oh, sound. I know. See, this is something that they know what's happening even if they can't see it. Yeah, yeah. Unless they're really young. That is true. (laughs) Do you ever see the things like people will say, like, you know, the universal button for save on all applications is the floppy disk, but there's no way. Mm. Like, they will know it as the save button. There's no way for them to know that it's a floppy disk. Right. I I used to take exception with people who who would make that little analogy because I would say, well, I'm not that old and I know what floppy disks are, but now I am that old. Mm. Yep. (laughs) I've been that old. (laughs) You you said... You said it. You sounded like that touched you in a certain, it, it in a certain did. way. Okay. I hit me in the feels. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chris Mallard writes, "Dear Alan and Sherry, do you think the Pontiac Solstice will be a collector's car like the '60s Camaro and Mustangs are?" Um. Actually, I tell you what, Chris. I I'm positive it won't. But it's not. It's not because I have anything in particular against the Solstice or Pontiacs in general. It's really more that. All like when you sit back and you're thinking of like all the great collectors cars, first of all, when you're thinking collector, you're thinking an older vehicle, but even 40 years from now, when something like a Solstice is as old as like a 65 Camaro or whatever is today, it still won't matter because man, all those older cars just had so much more style Mm. and presence than just all of our just boring fiberglass tubes. Steel. Give me steel. And everything, everything's beige. Have you noticed that? Uh, yeah, pretty much. We okay. live in a beige world. I'm a color girl. Uh, <laughs> racist. <laughs> they, 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 it's, it's, it's girl of color now, Sherry. Uh, yeah, Jesus. yeah, yeah. White people um, of color. Uh, Tim, <laughs> Tim, can we do one episode without getting throttled and shadow banned, please? Just please. I, I'm sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's been me all along. Tim Wysong writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, do you collect the little stickers from the McDonald's Monopoly game? You know, when I was a kid, I did collect the stickers from the McDonald's mm-hmm. Monopoly game, partly because I liked McDonald's, so I would get the stickers, mm-hmm. and partly because I liked Monopoly. But then I grew up and realized, just, just as in life, it's fucking rigged, man. Yeah. You know, there's like 8 million park places in two boardwalks. You ain't right. getting it. I ain't getting it for sure. But there's still there's still like that gambler inside you that whenever you see someone get a thing of fries and then just throw the container away, you're like, that was the boardwalk. Right. They just that was threw it. it in the trash. 
how can they just throw it in the trap? Even if you don't play, you have to look at least. I mean. Yeah, that's the, yeah, exactly. You know, there's a lot of people who think to themselves, I don't play those games, but you know, they still peel off the stickers. I I'm looking. Like, okay. <laughs> uh, Ryan Seifert asks, Ryan hasn't been around in a long time. Yeah, and hey, it's Ryan. because it's because he was one of these guys who's like, I'm getting banned on Facebook. So I'm done with Facebook. Mm, yeah. But but that's where we do the community viewer mm. mail. So, mm -hmm. Guess but you not. know, but you know, the thing is though, is that whenever we've tried to do like our big Wednesday night premieres on a different platform, which by the way, it's Wednesday night at nine Eastern time for, for those that are new to the program. Um, we try to do that. And then everyone's like, I don't like this. <laughs> where are the comments? I can't get it to load. So it's just, so anyway, it's on Facebook. Facebook. Ryan Seifert writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, if coffee beans grow in pods, wouldn't that make coffee a fruit juice? Now, Ryan, mm. this is, so Ryan is right, but he doesn't realize why he's right. So on a, on a, probably two years ago now at this point, we did an episode of the show where we had decided that, that, so, cause coffee comes from beans and i think beans are technically legumes and so it's actually right? not it's actually not a vegetable juice or a fruit juice but i looked this up and and so thanks to ryan i learned something so so first of all coffee beans aren't beans at all hmm. the coffee beans are actually seeds and they're actually they do actually grow a fruit called like it's like a coffee fruit and they look sort of like red and orange like like the size of cherries almost, or like a cherry tomatoes, you know? Ah. And they taste awful. They taste like, they kind of like have a fragrance, more like a flower. So they're kind of like perfumey, you know? Right. But people, so people don't really eat the fruit, but you take the seeds, which is what you know of as a coffee bean. And of course you grind it up and make coffee. But if it's a seed and it grows a fruit, I'll be damned. Coffee is a fruit juice. Wow. This, this show is so informative. I tell you what, I feel like at this point, people, this is, this is really the only reason anyone watches the show. Yeah, at this point. The third question. So, so I'm, I'm so glad he did that. And now I can spring that on our unknowing guests later in the show. Ooh, that'll be good. So hold on to that. Yeah. Laudario writes, dear Alan and Sherry, do you consume fruit and what fruits do you consume? Well, I don't, I don't really care for coffee. <laughs> um, not, not a big coffee guy. I tell you what, if you add sugar to your coffee, does that make coffee a smoothie? Oh, now, now we're getting deep. This is getting deep. I, I think it might. And creamer, like maybe it's kind of a cereal smoothie. Oh something. my God, they already have iced coffee. Ugh. Those are smoothies. Abomination before the Lord. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're smoothies. I swear to God. Um, I actually do love watermelon, though. Ew. You're not from here. You I, wouldn't I know. I am. No. You know, you know what fruit I love? What? White grapefruit. And it's so hard to find. You have to, like, order it. You can't get it in the stupid Kroger. I thought I you look... were going to... I thought you were going to say Richard Simmons. I do love Richard Simmons, That too. was such a missed opportunity, It I was feel. a missed opportunity. He's so great. He's fabulous. I love him. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Celeste Annis writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, if your cake writing skill is neat, do you have good frost frostingmanship? She's flying too high to the sun, Alan. Her wings yeah, are Yeah, she's, she's pulling an Icarus <laughs> like me. We, flying too close you. to the sun. Yeah, we love you, Celeste, but, you know, that, that was a little too close. At, at a minimum, it should have just been frosting ship. That would have been an easier... Yeah, I think. yeah. Yeah. Um, only if you can do it in Comic Sans. Oh, interesting. Could or what are those widgets? I like those things. Could you imagine knowing a person who their actual, like, cursive style was they wrote in Comic Sans? That, that'd be awesome. I'm going to teach myself to do that. <laughs> I'm going to naturally write in Comic Sans. That'd be awesome. Um... Eric Eli writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, if corporations and or entities such as Facebook and Twitter are private businesses, then what difference is there between them and Bob's Cake Stop? 
Now, Eric, the reason why we don't answer questions like this that you give is that we don't do political questions in the viewer mail. This is only for fun and irreverent questions. Fine. You, you should know that by now. However, I'm going to answer your question just because I like you. The difference between between the big big tech platforms and Bob's Cake Stop is Bob's Cake Stop is not subsidized to the tune of billions of dollars in monopoly protections by the U.S. government. That's the difference. Only that. Just that one teensy little difference. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Avery writes, blue cheese, yay or nay? Ugh. It's gross. I, I'm, I'm going to go with yay. I, I like it occasionally. Who? But I haven't had it in forever. Who on God's green earth does not like watermelon, but likes blue cheese? I like the pungent flavors, Alan. Have you considered that you've perhaps had a stroke? <laughs> yes okay i have had brain damage so there you go okay well okay all right there you go uh jonathan Carenza writes dear alan and sherry what is your favorite breed of dog sherry what's your favorite breed of dog cats <laughs> um i don't think the breed really matters it, it all tastes a lot like chicken dogs are fine meat mm, i have eaten dog actually so, so, okay, so, so for, for folks at home, this person does not like watermelon, does like blue cheese, and has sampled dog. Just, just. I mean, it honestly was the most delicious egg roll I have ever had in my life. It was, it was you just had to, you just had to add in there that it was an egg roll, didn't you? It, it happened to be, I can't help it if it was an egg roll, right? Like, I'm not making it up. That really happened when I was a child, and it, this, it was fantastic. This Same. show is going off air, I think. That's... <laughs> it won't be anything else. It'll be the fact that I've eaten dog that will <laughs> ruin your show. And finally, racist. And finally, Andrew Avery writes, Dear Alan and Sherry, if a glass blower got hiccups, would that give him stomach pains? Now, so, so again, for folks at home, he wrote pains, P-A-N-E-S, like a window pane. But as we've tried to instruct Andrew in the past on, okay. on more than a few occasions now, I believe. So if you're, if you're working on a show like this, but we're, we're not showing people what you typed right. without them having the visual medium, it doesn't really work. And, and, and to be honest with you, we're really not going to commit ourselves to any time each week to develop <laughs> visual cue cards for Andrew's puns. Right, right. I, but in, in his defense, that is good punnage right there. I mean, that, that works. But if he's so good at puns, we, we challenge him to do puns that people can get without having to read them to themselves. Okay. Yes. All right. Um... I am happy to report, by the way, we're so far over time and we haven't even gotten to the guest yet. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so things are going as usual. <laughs> things are going pretty much about as usual. So guys, we're going to be right back with tonight's guest right after this break. Don't go away. Your ad could be playing right now, reaching thousands of potential customers. Sadly, it's not, but it could be. Find out how to be an advertised sponsor for It's Too Late with Alan Mosley. Email us at info at alanmosley.tv. Guys, welcome back to the show. Our guests this evening are foreign policy experts, investigative journalists, and the hosts of Conflicts of Interest, which you can find over at the Libertarian Institute via libertarianinstitute.org. Please welcome Kyle Anzalone and Will Porter. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks so much. How's it going, Alan? Sherry? What's up, guys? Hey. It's it's going great. I, I we just did this the other day, but I didn't have to wear a suit and tie. So how dare you make me get all dressed up to do this? But I tell you what, you guys put me the shame the last time we talked in the same way you are right now. Because because go back go back to go back to Will and Kyle. You got the WikiLeaks over here. <laughs> you got the WikiLeaks, and of course you've got and you've got Will, but the, the misfits. And I, yeah. and I and I'm such a corporate stooge. Look at that. 
So guys, I'm going to start right off. We're going to start with a couple of the big ones and then sort of work our way down. So something that I know that you guys have talked about very recently on the show, and, and I know it's been a big topic in the news, will they or won't they, will the United States stick to this most recent promise to pull out of Afghanistan? Even, and then as soon as you hear that, you see all these reports spamming all the news agencies. Well, the Taliban's going to be retaking the country just in a matter of seconds once the United States rolls out. So I'm going to kind of just start there and leave the floor open for you guys. We'll, we'll, we'll kick it over to Kyle and then we'll, um, I'm going to give you an easy prediction and then follow up easy prediction. Do you think the United States will be out of Afghanistan by the most recent promise date? Uh, no, because they said that I believe they're keeping 650 uh, to guard the embassy. So, I mean, that's that's a lot of troops. So it, it doesn't really count. They're going to claim that they did it because I, I think they're actually going to like transfer control of a lot of the other military facilities in Afghanistan. And I'm not sure how serious they still are about taking out all the contractors, but it does look like they're they're keeping a, a significant number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. I don't know if Will has anything more up to date, though. Yeah, I mean, you're hearing kind of some, like, mixed signals, because, like, at once, uh, on the one hand, you're hearing, like, the official withdrawal date is supposed to be September 11th. That was extended on from Trump. He was supposed to get out by May 1st. Mm -hmm. Biden kind of extended that. However, we've heard other reports lately that, like, the, the withdrawal is going faster than planned and that they might actually be out by this summer. Um, however, you also have things that Kyle is talking about that they're they're mentioning leaving a contingent of several hundred troops to guard the embassies. Um, there was recently this intelligence assessment that found that or that claimed that uh, Kabul, the capital city of of uh, Afghanistan, could fall to the Taliban within six to twelve months by the time the U.S. leaves. And amid that report, you also had some some reports about the White House talking about trying to s slow roll the withdrawal a little bit, uh, talking to the Pentagon, maybe leaving troops at the Bagram Air Base and not not withdrawing from that. And so it seems like there's things kind of going in two different directions here. We do have the reports that, hey, they might actually be you know, out before the, 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 uh, the deadline on September 11th. But then we have all these other things talking about how you know, the, the, the Taliban is going to take over the capital city, how we should maybe leave some troops to guard the embassies, how maybe we should leave troops in nearby countries like uh, Uzbekistan, some of these other neighboring states to, to potentially uh, you know, re-enter Afghanistan if they need to. So it seems like they're kind of trying to do both things at once. They're, they're going for this withdrawal date, but at the same time, they're also trying to find ways to stay if they you know, decide to do that. Well, so that's that's kind of an interesting aspect of it. Um, both of you guys, give me your thoughts on sort of the the domestic political angle of how much do you think the potential withdrawal, what that withdrawal would look like and when that withdrawal would happen, how much of that is affected by political posturing? Um, and, and specifically what I'm what I'm referencing is, is that, of course, there was a withdrawal date that originally was announced under the end of the Trump presidency. And I mean, this, this was, I mean, that was almost one of the first things that happens when a new regime comes into office, right? They're immediately whitewashing everything they possibly can from the previous administration. They're immediately trying to get all of their appointees in, uh, which, which is pretty textbook, but th they're also trying to sort of undo some of, of what could be seen as, as the good or the promising from the previous administration and put their own stamp on events going forward. So unfortunately for us, how much of political bickering between uh, elites in, in the States ultimately affects what happens in Afghanistan? Well, I, I mean, I think a ton. I, I, I guess if it, I think it was just up to Biden, he would probably stick with the September 11th date. Um, but I don't know how many troops that means getting out of the country, but you know, even leaving the the six hundred number that has been floated, I, I think it's possible that Biden would actually be interested in sticking with that. But uh, the Republicans are about to lob a massive amount of pressure on Biden, and they did this stupid thing by making September eleventh the withdrawal date. Make it the first, make it the thirtieth. It doesn't really matter. Just don't pick the eleventh mm -hmm. because the Republicans are going to make so much hay out of 
Biden, you know, leaving Afghanistan, abandoning the war on the, you know, 20th anniversary of the the terrorist attacks that started that war in the, you know, the minds of many Americans. So uh, I, I think he's kind of facing a political nightmare here because he's now committed to this withdrawal. It's his because he passed up on Trump's, but he said he's going to do it anyways. And it, the 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 Afghan government is falling apart. They can't maintain their air force, their helicopters because they made them by American made helicopters that they can't repair. <laughs> and now they're getting rid of the contractors that repair those helicopters. And so, I, I mean, for a lot of reasons, Biden's going to suffer because this withdrawal wasn't there. There's better ways to do it. There's better ways to handle this war all along, but certainly there are better ways to do it. Now they're scrambling to get uh, all the interpreters that worked with the U S out of the country and these people are subject to reprisal attacks but it's them and their families so they're gonna have to process like 50,000 people but they're not gonna bring them to the US they're looking for like a third country to bring them to possibly Qatar the Emirates Guam uh, but e even this is still a small fraction of the number of people in Afghanistan who are going to be vulnerable because they worked with the U.S. Mm -hmm. I had on a, a veteran of the Afghan war, uh, Scott Spaulding, on the show, and, and me and him talked about how, you know, he, he's saying that a lot of the, the construction work was done by Afghans, by just local people, and a lot of other work, too. And so, the, you know, they're going to be possibly subject to reprisals, and, and none of them are probably going to get out of the country. So Biden's doing a pretty poor job with this withdrawal. And the fact that, you know, it's just been a 20-year failed war and whatever president is going to get it's smeared there. But, uh, well, I don't know if you have anything else, but Biden's blunders on top of everything else is going to make this a nightmare for him. Yeah, I would just say in terms of like the, the, the domestic optics in the U.S., like when Trump first with, uh, announced the withdrawal, they, they signed a deal with the Taliban last, <coughs> excuse me, February 2020. The, the sort of like uh, refrain against him was that this is irresponsible. This is too fast that they're, you know, withdrawing after only 20 years of occupation, the longest war in American history. It's too soon to withdraw. And so Biden, I think, is kind of like combating those perceptions. I think that's why he extended the withdrawal date and said, OK, we'll give it a little more time, even though I think he clearly could have met the May withdrawal date if they really wanted to. But there's sort of this perception that, oh, leaving is irresponsible and we're abandoning our, our friends and allies in Afghanistan. So this is like the, the Republicans are really playing up on this right now that, you know, we can't just, you know, cut loose and leave our friends high and dry. That's like a, a common refrain you're hearing from them. So that I think that is one major dynamic that like the Biden is is facing that, you know, this this claim. I mean, I think he helped to feed into that perception that Trump's withdrawal deal was, uh, you know, irresponsible. But now he's trying to make this withdrawal happen while also, you know, uh, going against that, making it not look like it's uh, rushed or something, even though it's been, you know, 20 years there. Well, we're we're going to talk a little bit more about Afghanistan, but we'll we'll come back to that. I want to I want to move on to the the next big one that's on most people's minds, and that's the war in well, if I, I don't even know if we're technically still at war, uh, the war in Iraq. And I know that there was recent news about the AUM, AUMF with Iraq. Um, take take the audience a little bit through uh, an, an update on where where the wars or u.s intervention in iraq currently stands and and how how different and how far removed is the situation in iraq compared to what we've talked about so far with afghanistan i mean i'm not particularly good at telling jokes but a comedian could probably find a pretty good one here right now biden supports uh ending the 2002 authorization for use of military force that authorized the war in iraq and that, you know, that's support by the Biden administration, support by Democrats. It's kind of bipartisan, but it is hitting some resistance now in the Senate. But, uh, you know, we all know have all the details yet. Uh, but just before, you know, we start recording here, it was announced uh, that the U.S. bombed Iraq and Syria. So it, it's absolutely meaningless supporting the, the end of the 2002 AUMF because the guy that supports India is also bombing the country that it was written for. So they're they're going to continue to wage all the wars they want without it. Yeah, and you mentioned the the repeal of the 2002 AUMF. That's the one that authorized us to mm -hmm. in, to go into Iraq sure. uh, in 2003, the invasion. And there's a lot of like much ado being made about that right now. And certainly, I would like to see that repealed. There's also talk of repealing uh, the 1991 Gulf War AUMF, as well as one from like 1957 that talks about uh, the threat of international communism. However, the thing that I think would really do a lot to to you know affect uh, you know U.S. foreign policy would be to repeal the 2001 AUMF. That is the one that the Pentagon interprets to to justify uh, going after Al Qaeda and all associated forces anywhere on planet Earth. 
So that's the one they justify to put troops in like Kenya, for example, because they're fighting, uh, you know, to, to address the threat of al-Shabaab in Somalia next door. So really, this is the really super broad one that has a lot of teeth. And there's not really much talk about repealing that one. Um, unfortunately, the 2002, like, sure, that would be great to repeal that. But I don't see much. I don't think that would do much, make much difference in the actual U.S. policy. I think we'd find ways to stay involved in Iraq, stay involved in neighboring countries. And, uh, you know, I just don't think again, I support it, but I don't think that's like the, the big you know, thing here. Well, we'll we'll go here to to wrap up before we take our first commercial break. Uh, something that Ron Paul used to say all the time. He actually said it on on this show. It was that he he genuinely believes that the peace candidate almost always wins. And of course, he he wasn't trying to say that the people who win are peaceful people who then go on to end the wars and and you know uh, quit the interventions overseas. What he was saying was is who at least who portrays themselves that way. If you're if you're in the general and you're running for office and you run on a humble foreign policy, if you run on the attitude of the wars have been going on too long, it costs too much money, you know, let's let's get out. Let's let's at least wind them down. Let's bring it to a close. Again, not that you do that, because I mean, far be it for me to ever say a politician lied about what they said they were going to do. But if you at least run on that as a platform, more likely than not, you will win. Because even though, yes, you have all sorts of people uh, across the country that blindly support the empire, in general, the longer things go, the more death, the more destruction, the more money is lost, the worse the economy gets, especially, the more you have people generally have an attitude of, hey, you know, let's, let's wrap it up. No one wants to be seen as the losers. No one wants to think of their country being being in a failed war, but they want it to be over. They want it to be wrapped up. Um, and, and yet, here we are. You, you had Trump get into office. Uh, I think it's pretty fair to say that Trump didn't exactly live up to the hype. Um, but at least one little thing he might have done. Now, granted, he was dropping Moab, so this is certainly not not a good thing on his part. But he at least had negotiated the withdrawal. Okay, then you have the next election cycle. Biden gets in. On, on the one hand, Biden wants to make his own mark on things. But on the other hand, you have a lot of people who the wars are unpopular. They want it to end. So, so, that, so that brings me to this. This is, this is maybe a prediction for the midterms and afterwards. In the same way that Biden has sort of is sort of stuck now in this. And, we, and will he or won't he? Is he going to own it? Is he not? But at the same time, you would think that Republicans, if they wanted to be seen as the peace candidates and they want to win in 22 and 24, they would be saying, why, why did Biden, why did Biden stop the withdrawal? Why didn't we get out in May? Look, we had this great deal in place. We were going to bring the troops home and he ruined it. It feels like that would have been the way to stick them. But that's not the way they're doing it. I'm seeing people from all over the different spectrums of the right wing. You're seeing uh, Bobbert. You're seeing Marjorie Taylor Greene. You're seeing people like Mitt Romney coming out of the woodworks and saying, hey, now, let's not be too hasty. It's only been 20 years. Are you, are you a little bit taken aback by that? Or do you think this is just classic old Republicans being terrible? I, I mean, I find it pretty predictable that, you know, Biden's in office, so the Republicans want the opposite of what he wants. If he was making a big deal out of wanting to go to war with Syria, some of the Republicans would probably be pretty good and support that. Now, a part of the Republican Party is Liz Cheney and Tom Cotton and all of them, and they're going to support every intervention. But uh, that's not the entirety of the party. Now, I feel like what's missing is that, you know, that statement with that accent was coming out of your mouth, Alan, and not Senator Rand Paul. Because that would be a pretty important voice to hear right now. In fact, he was like making a big stink about uh, the Afghan, you know, not bringing the Afghan interpreters out of the country that the U.S. supported. But, you, you know, he just needs to be hammering home the fact that he supports this and this does have bipartisan support and also making sure he's teaming up with. Uh, different Republicans from the House too, like Massey and a few others that that I'm guessing do actually support this. But it, I don't know. It seems to be kind of consensus in the Republican Party that you're not going to, you know, praise Biden even if he's doing anything good. That's that's one of the reasons why I'm so concerned here is because uh, 
even though I think this is a popular uh, American position, even if it gets messy, I think the American people are generally going to be happy to be out of Afghanistan. Uh, but the, the message and the narrative from the mainstream, I think both right and left are that this was poorly executed and probably shouldn't have been done. Uh, and that's what we're going to see come out. Yeah, I think Kyle's right that like some of this is just like standard Republicans. If Biden's doing it, they're gonna you know be the ones to oppose it. Mm -hmm. But I think Biden's kind of a little bit unique in this way too, because I think you're right that like the peace candidate, like uh, George W. Bush, talked about a humble foreign policy. You know, the war on terror stuff didn't really happen until after he was elected. Obama, of course, made his big thing. He's the peace candidate. He's gonna shut down Guantanamo, all this stuff. Trump, a very similar deal. He said he's gonna you know the wars were a lie. It's all a big scam. They're ripping us off. Um, whereas Biden didn't really position himself as the peace candidate, I don't think. I don't think he really like uh, sold himself like that on the campaign trail. I think it was more Trump was this unique evil that he was going to stop and he was going to return the soul of America. So I don't think that's really been like a big uh, a theme of Biden's uh, presidency, that he's going to be the guy to end these wars. He's more the return to normal guy. You know, that's kind of what he sold himself on. And normal in, in the U.S. is, you know, the empire. That's what he that's sort of what he represents, I think, is that sort of normalcy. And so it might not be that effective of a thing to say, oh, you know, Biden's the, you know, I don't know, to for the Republicans to take that tack, the opposite tack they're taking now. I don't know how, how effective that'd be. Right. He was kind of like pro ending the endless wars is what he said, but he's not actually doing that. But he was definitely a bigger hawk on Russia and China and or yeah. at least tried to out hawk Trump, Trump on Russia and China. I don't know if he always succeeded, but he tried. Sure. Right. Exactly. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about if it bleeds and leads and what sort of direction the corporate media is steering the public right after this break. Don't go away. If you're enjoying tonight's show, consider supporting the program by becoming a member of our Patreon. That's over at patreon.com slash Alan Mosley. Huh. <laughs> Good job, Sherry. Guys, welcome back to the show. We're here with uh, Colin Zalona Will Porter of Conflicts of Interest that you can find over at the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. Uh, guys, I want to talk a little bit. Something we had talked about off air was how the, the news cycle is very, I mean, it's a cycle, so it's cyclical. And you see things pop up in the news and it's almost like you can't miss them. It's just 24-7 coverage. And then a week or two goes by and this this massive you know, global event, this foreign policy initiative just disappears from the news and we're on to the next thing. And there was a couple that I had in mind in particular, and Kyle, you had actually already mentioned it briefly. Uh, I want to talk a few moments about Syria. Now, Syria, in, in my mind, is sort of the textbook example of something that uh, you think of a summer or two, a couple of summers ago, maybe even at this point, uh, whether it was um, talking about Assad, whether it was uh, accusations of chemical weapons being used on his own people. Oh, we need another regime change. And that and that was all taking place uh, under the Trump presidency. Uh, so kind of give us a brief idea of where the situation in Syria stands right now and, and maybe muse a little bit about why it is that something like Syria can be portrayed by the corporate press as being this, this significant groundbreaking event. And then all of a sudden, I mean, I can't even remember the last time I heard anything about Syria in the news. Yeah, so I, I mean, most of the coverage in the past few years has been around the chemical weapons attack and the allegations uh, if chemical weapons were used or not in Duma. Uh, of course, Aaron Monte has done a ton of great reporting and uh, exposing that, you know, there, there was a huge kind of cover up at the OPCW that seemed influenced by the Trump administration. I've, you know, I, I think it's a scandal that really should have brought down the, the, the Trump administration, what you could have impeached him on is it seems that, you know, they reacted, overreacted to Duma, bombed Syria, 
on a, a fake allegations of a chemical weapons attack, and then afterwards pressured the OPCW to find that Assad carried out chemical weapons to justify uh, their bombing of the country. And, you know, it was out congressional authorization or anything. And so I feel like that's kind of disappeared from the narr the media narrative because as the documents have come out, it's become clearer and clearer that a chemical weapons attack didn't happen, that this was uh, essentially, I, I guess, a false flag event where, uh, a, you know, there was bombing going on. There was a civil war at the time. There were jihadists in Duma that were uh, shelling the like, suburbs of Damascus, the capital city. And so the, the Syrian government was just fine by bombing them. I'm not saying that Assad's a great guy for doing that, but imagine if, you know, there was a terrorist group outside Washington, D.C., shelling, you know, the the area that the defense contractors live in, I guarantee you that there would be drones dropping bombs there, right? Like we all know this. And so, yeah, that was exploited and that event was exploited to create this whole narrative. But as it's been debunked, it's fallen out of the media, kind of like the, the Mueller report after, you know, Mueller's uh, very lame uh, <laughs> congressional hearing. They, they talked less and less about Russiagate. Now, I mean, they still did, but less and less. And, you know, we, I think what we see the same thing where they they build it up big when they have about zero evidence and when they can make all these accusations and when you can't debunk them all they say so you don't know so there could be a threat and then uh, that's you know kind of what you're talking about the way the the news works and if it bleeds it leads um i don't know will i you probably are better on the current updates for syria and to plug episode 128 of our show that'll be out monday uh we uh we talk about syria and have updates in there so for more detailed check out that yeah, so I would say Syria kind of has been on the back burner under Biden so far. Like it was a major issue under Obama when we were arming up and training all these rebel groups trying to overthrow the Syrian government. Under Trump, it kind of became this weird controversy where he wanted to withdraw and the, the military is sort of like countermanding his orders. If you remember his uh, Syria envoy, Jim Jeffrey, had said that, yeah, we were playing shell games at the White House, lying about the troop level in Syria. Um, but more lately, more recently, it's become kind of just like a non-issue. You don't really hear much about this in media. Um, I mean, uh, Syria recently had an election. You heard about that just to, so the, the, the State Department can say how, you know, it was a sham, false, phony election, which, you know, it may well have been. I don't I don't know the details there. But that was kind of the last big story that you heard about Syria was the, the race. Um, however, just last week, actually, the State Department did give a briefing on sort of like the, the intention of the Biden administration in terms of the U.S. troops there. Because there are still, I think the latest numbers are like 900 soldiers uh, stationed in the northeast of Syria in the Kurdish areas, as well as down south in this area called Al Tamf. In a, uh, we used to uh, train up and back a Arab rebel group down there. I'm not totally sure. None of the journalists at the briefing asked about what was happening at the Al Tamf garrison, so we don't really know what's happening there. Um, however, they are still planning on keeping these 900 troops in Syria. That's the State Department has made that clear just last week that the, they're going to be there. And their sole purpose apparently is to defeat the Islamic State. Um, you know, we all heard all these different reports about how ISIS was apparently defeated. And the administration does talk about the territorial defeat of the Islamic State. It's not really a state in any by any definition of that term anymore, but it is still a sort of insurgent group. And they're going to be using that, I think, for some time to come to remain occupying uh, uh, nor at least northeastern Syria. Now, this is not as bad as what we were doing before, training up and arming rebel groups like that contributed to 100,000 people dying in that country, at least. You know, there's I think the last number I saw, it's getting it's nearing now 500,000 casualties in the Civil War. You know, we've, you know, we dumped, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons into that country and really fueled that violence. Now what we're doing is not quite on the level of that. We're sort of just, you know, this low level presence there. But we are keeping a foothold in Syria for, you know, whatever purpose we want to have, uh, you know, for years to come, I think. Well, that's a, so, I mean, that's been a recurring theme that we've talked about, I think, in, in every different uh, conflict so far this evening is no matter what, no matter what administration is in office and no matter what gets repealed and no matter what uh, supposed withdrawals happen, there's, there's going to be a presence maintained, which I feel like not only does that obviously mean that, that kinetically they're still involved in the region but that but that remains it's it's all about a foothold right and so that so that that theoretically means that at any time should there be another attack real or imagined should there be uh should there be you know uh, one regime change or another take place then then the united states could enter right back into the theater and and resume operations 
And, and I think, I think even the, the average layman on the street in the States would say, well, that's not a withdrawal. A withdrawal is you're not, you're not poised to wage war the next day. That's not what a withdrawal is. I think, I think in our minds, we think of withdrawal. We think not only are all the troops out, but they're getting on the boats and the boats are sailing home, right? They're getting, they're, they're leaving the region. Um, and, but I, I want to touch really quick on one thing that you had mentioned before we move on to my, to my last topic this evening. And that is, you talked to, Will, you had mentioned the shell game. Uh, and I remember those reports being in the news of allegedly Trump, Trump's, when, when he was still president, he was saying that he, he favored a withdrawal. He wanted to be, if, if not with, if not sending the troops home in a literal sense, he was at least going to be reassigning troops. You know, you're thinking of getting troops out of the Middle East and sending them to Germany or, or wherever else, but that there were top officials in the military ranks that were purposely uh, mis- misleading and misdirecting the White House and, and, and making it effectively difficult for a commander-in-chief to, to remove those forces. So, so this is more of maybe just a, a rhetorical question for both of you guys than anything. But I think, you know, we're, we're all very similar like-minded folks, and we, you know, we're, we were all big Ron Paul fans. And we think of, well, if a Ron Paul got elected, you know, there'd be gridlock in Congress and he wouldn't be able to do a lot. But by goodness, with the pen of the executive, he could undo some wrongs and he could also get the military out of the Middle East. And yet you had a president that at least tangentially favored at least some withdrawals and quite literally could not manage to do it even when he wanted to. How are these guys not in prison? I, I mean, I have the same question for the traitor James Jeffrey, who you're talking about there is the official who played the shell game with the U.S. Or, you know, James Mattis, who intimidated Trump by saying that if uh, you leave the if you pull the troops out of Somalia, anything bad that happens there, I'll blame on you or they resigned for Trump trying to withdraw from Syria. Now, you, yeah, as you point out, there are a lot of roadblocks that the the you know establishment could throw up either through Congress or the Pentagon with officials resigning, but I guarantee you that when Trump flew uh, to Afghanistan, he could have loaded the plane up with about 150 soldiers and flown <laughs> back out. Which I remember Jacob Hornberger was writing at the time, and he was on a podcast and he was saying, and, and Trump just left without taking the troops with them. You know what I mean? Trump could have said, "I'm not leaving this country until every soldier is out of here," and that probably could have gotten it done. And then you you know people will say, "Oh well, all the equipment is going to fall into the hands of the Taliban." Or something. He could have said to the military, look, you could either blow it up with airstrikes or you could let it fall into the hands of the Taliban. I guarantee you they would have destroyed it all. No doubt in my mind. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that the, that Trump could have done to really leverage this, including being more active and forceful on Twitter about it. You know, he used the platform to make a lot of noise, but most of it was like Kofefe or something stupid like that. It wasn't about like, you know, James Mattis is refusing to bring the troops home. They are not giving me the tread correct troop numbers and yeah then, then maybe the american people will have will to throw them in jail the problem is is that most of the american people don't understand how much these people deserve to be in jail they think that oh yeah well they you know they threw up some roadblocks in front of trump but he was a reckless guy they don't understand that they're you know waging an illegal war on a constitutional war in syria killing hundreds of thousands of people throwing the middle east into chaos as a jihadist breeding ground you know the the even James Jeffrey admitted that the safe haven, the biggest safe haven in the world for Al Qaeda, was uh, the Idlib province of Syria. And why are all the jihadists there with a whole bunch of guns? Because the U.S. and our uh, Gulf Arab allies, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, and particularly Turkey, funded and protects the hell out of them. And, you know, Trump could have said that on Twitter. Apparently, you know, sometimes they say, oh, he said something like that to Erdogan or said something, you know, behind the scenes. But he could have come out and said right to the American people. And the American people would have demanded that John Brennan would rot in a jail cell forever. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the formally the the system, the way it's supposed to work, the commander in chief is the guy in the chair. He's the guy in charge. He's supposed to order. He can order troop movements whenever he wants. But there is a thing, uh, you know, there's a couple different names for it. We, Kyle and I sometimes call it the blob, 
It's just sort of this like the the another term for it is the deep state. It's sort of like these uh, these the permanent military bureaucracy that really calls the shots beneath the actual elected officials. And that sounds very conspiratorial. And, you know, some people might even be skeptical that such a thing exists. But we just talked about it. We just talked about James Jeffrey, the Syria envoy, countermanding an order from the commander in chief to, to pull troops out of Syria. This stuff does happen. There is sort of this like. Uh, non-elected bureaucracy that really does call a lot of the shots. Some of those are military officials. Some of their some of them are civilians. Sometimes uh, there are people outside of any governance and media and think tanks and stuff that have a lot of influence. That is what we call the blob or the deep state. And I think it often does have a lot more power than the you know formal official elected bodies that are in charge. Yeah, I mean that's it's what's funny is is I think. I think there was no shortage of of press coverage and of podcasts and blogs and what have you that in in the era of Trump talking about the deep state. But so much of that got tied into the Russiagate stuff. The the who whose whose family is a crime family stuff. Hashtag Trump crime family. Hashtag Clinton crime family. It got so tied up in that kind of tabloid news that real genuine like i mean i would dare say even treasonous activity that was literally taking place at the highest levels of government i mean what you know it's it's on page 14d right like that's that's about as much coverage as it got and then it was gone um guys i i wanted to actually talk a little bit about about the American involvement such as it is with the crisis in Yemen, but we're basically out of time. So, uh, so Sherry, I think we'll just do it anyway. What do you think? Sounds good to me. All right. So we're, we're going to take a couple of minutes really quick. Um, what is the state of the United States involvement with Yemen as it stands today? All right, I'll try to do this as quick as possible. Uh, Biden, when he came in, said that he was ending offensive support for Saudi Arabia. Now, a normal person would think offensive support for Saudi Arabia would mean like all the military equipment we're giving them, the maintenance on the airplanes that they used to bomb Yemen, mm -hmm. the bombs that they used to bomb Yemen. Uh, but he did freeze one ar or two arms sales that were planned by the Trump administration to Saudi Arabia. However, the UK has said that they will continue to sell the bombs to Saudi Arabia and also so he authorized a $23 billion weapon sale to Saudi Arabia's coalition partner in the war, uh, the UAE. And as far as we know, that the maintenance is still going on on the airplanes. But that's like the kinetic military force. A lot of what's going on is protecting Saudi Arabia at the UN. So none of the resolutions condemn Saudi Arabia because 400,000 children are predicted to die this year in 2020. Uh, 21 if the the blockade isn't lifted so this this could get really nasty and then as far as we know the u.s support for the blockade of yemen is still on and that's the the real tragedy that prevents the food from getting to the kids and you know the the equipment yemen needs to rebuild their bridges so people could get to the hospital so food could get around the country and that can't happen because of the blockade so well i don't know if i missed anything but it, it's dire and the u.s is an essential actor yeah, I think you summarized the kind of the current situation well. I just would like to remind people that Yemen is has been described by the UN, many humanitarian agencies, as one of the worst crisis, humanitarian crises on planet Earth. And this could not man-made humanitarian crises on planet Earth could not happen without U.S. support. Biden has, you know, I guess it's good that he signaled he's going to pull back some of that offensive support. However, as Kyle said, they are still doing the aircraft maintenance. And we should just recall that, you know, it's it's because of American weapons sold to the Saudis, it's because of our aircraft maintenance, it's because of our mid-air refueling, logistics aid, you know, all this stuff. There's so many different ways in which the U.S. has made this possible. And Uncle Sam's name is all over this, you know, this terrible catastrophe. On that note, guys, where can everybody go to support each of your works individually and conflicts of interest? So conflicts of interest, Twitter handle is at con underscore interest. We also have Facebook and MeWe pages that you could follow. Uh, the show's up on Odyssey and YouTube. You could follow me at uh Kyle Anslone underscore, or by checking out the news roundup that's at the Libertarian Institute every day. That's, you know, my summary of the news going on. And also the viewpoint section at antiwar.com. Uh, I put that together. 
Yeah, if you guys want to find me, the best place to find all my writing, I am a staff writer at RT, uh, the evil riskies. I'm writing for them. Uh, <laughs> you can find me uh, at the Will Porter. It's uh, where all my writing is collected. And I think you'll find that I'm very fair and neutral and balanced and not a uh, Russian propaganda. So, <laughs> Guys, we're going to get you out of here on this one. Now, our audience learned earlier in this very episode that coffee <laughs> beans are not beans at all. They're actually seeds of a bush that grows little bitty cherry-sized fruits. They are coffee fruits, and, and coffee beans are actually seeds. So if coffee beans if are seeds that grow fruits, does that mean that the drink coffee is fruit juice? I don't think so, man. I think a bean is a seed, isn't it? Isn't it just a bean, just a type of seed? I'm not a biologist here, but I, I'm fairly confident about this. I don't know, Kyle. What do you think? Uh, I defer to Will. I'm a tea drinker. I don't. I don't drink coffee. <laughs> I know Will is a coffee addict, though. So what he says oh, goes on this one. If you got a tea question, I'll try field it. So totally out. the correct answer is is that if the seed will grow a fruit, then that means it is a fruit seed, which means that coffee is a fruit juice, as well as iced coffee is a smoothie. <laughs> guys My thank blunt. you thank you so much for being on the show we're going to be back to wrap up the program right after this break don't go away hi guys it's alan here and i want to take a moment to let you know about one of our supporters who started a new business Laura Moreau sells 50 different health and wellness all-natural products from weight loss, supplements, energy enhancers, body toning, longer and stronger hair, and so much more. Do you like coffee? Well, they even have coffee that'll help you drop some pounds. And who doesn't want to drop a few pounds? Go check her out at her online store at lauramoreau.itworks.com today. That's lauramoreau.itworks.com. Like our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash TV. You can follow me on Twitter. Twitter.com at TV. Subscribe to our YouTube page. It's youtube.com slash TV. We're also on Odyssey. That's odyssey.com at TV. Don't just complain about platforms not respecting your free speech. Go out and support one that does. That's odyssey.com at TV. As well as, if you like to listen instead of watch, and I just can't imagine you would, but if you did, <laughs> you can listen to us on your favorite podcasting platform of choice thanks to Anchor by Spotify. It's anchor.fm. Once again, it's TV. Sherry, do you have a final thought? Uh, yeah, don't bomb anyone. Don't, don't bomb and or rape anyone. That's correct. Yeah, no, definitely not both. Right. But you know what? Not either. Yeah. And you know who you are. Mm. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of It's Too Late, and we will see you next week.